0: Product of a lack of growth is poverty and crime. Those are like back to Econ 101. Right. And so just own it. Just, you know, if you're you're going to oppose growth in all of these forms, if you're not going to put a priority on economic development and new industry going to town, coming to town, that's your prerogative to do that, avail yourself of the civic process. But people need to just understand that they're a part of the problem. Right. And, and you don't get to lament that, right, um, as you um, perpetuate it.
1: From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here. A show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors. All the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Skip Foster former publisher of the Tallahassee Democrat, popular weather hobbyist, and creator of the Fanatical Middle News blog. He is a lifelong journalist, husband, and father of three who values respectful and nuanced discourse, which makes him a popular and trusted facilitator of important community discussions. A Florida native with strong Carolina roots, Skip is passionate about sports, leadership, the value and role of journalism, And as you've already heard, how responsible growth is the only real answer to our community's ongoing battle against crime and poverty. We started our conversation with how he would describe himself today.
0: Uh, I'm a curious guy. I like to know about people. I like to know about things. I like to know why things work or don't work. Uh, I'm always looking for contrary information. And so that makes me not in some ways a great fit and other ways, not a particularly good fit in where our culture is heading, which is toward a really polarized society. So I'm not going to fit neatly into um, red buckets or blue buckets or, all of the other ways we divide ourselves up. And so that's something I would want to know. I would want people to know about me is, hey, I'm I'm not likely to fit in uh, places where you might want me to be. Uh, well, what do
1: you think that is about you that kind of wants to stay, not be pigeonholed or stay flexible as far as um, the different camps that seem to be being established in our society.
0: And, and it's not just political camps uh, or ideological camps. I right. think there's all sorts of ways people do I don't know other than I'm a skeptic. And so when, if it's too easy, if it's easy, I generally am very dubious about that. And so if, if, if someone is going to say, hey, everything about this philosophy or this person I disagree with all of it, or I agree with all of it. I think that's a really kind of oversimplistic, and frankly, a little bit of a dangerous way to live your life. So, um, and it's a
1: little lazy too, right? You don't have to think about anything,
0: right? It's it's very much so. So, um, you know, I would want the person to know that I have an amazing wife and family. I would want. Uh, them to know the things I'm interested in, which are uh, most all of the sports and uh, golf and football in particular, uh, that uh, I've spent a long career in journalism, which I loved every minute of, uh, not the journalism part, the leadership part, the marketing part, all of that stuff, and that I worry about my old field um, a lot. And And the impact, the decline in journalism will have on the republic. And, you know, there are a lot of people that will laugh at that, but I I think that's a real thing. So,
1: I know you were born in Lakeland, Mm -hmm. right? I, too, am a product of Imperial Polk County. Oh, my gosh. I grew up in Haines City. All right. So what was it like growing up for you in the Lakeland area?
0: It was just a very typical childhood. I mean, we, you know, we had a grapefruit and an orange and a tangerine tree in the front yard, right? And I didn't eat any of them, right? I mean, when they're plentiful and you know you don't want it, and then when you don't have it anymore, you wondered why you didn't eat all of that stuff. Right? Um, I went to public schools uh, that were, um, you know, integrated and and successful and. Uh, it was, I would say, a kind of unremarkable childhood. Okay. Um, do you have siblings? I have a sister who now lives in town and is a real estate agent.
1: Tell me about your parents.
0: They, uh, my dad uh, opened one of the first, started one of the first software companies way back when in the 80s. Oh. Uh, he ended up... Uh, He was helping the Tampa Bay bucks print their tickets and, um, um, and eventually sold that uh, and got into just some, you know, real estate development and other types of projects. In central Um, Florida. Yes. Uh, My mom was a a teacher early on and, uh, and then spent a lot of time, you know, trying to keep me out of trouble. So, uh, um, it was a, I was a very, um, we, we started without much at all. My dad was a, you know, true entrepreneur and um, he was in the, you know, selling calculators and chicken and all sorts of things before he found this, founded this business and, and then did very well. And so I was very lucky.
1: And it looks like you went to Lakeland High School for at least part of the time. Right. Right. So, how was high school for you? Do were you involved in stuff? Did you enjoy it? What What were yeah, those? Yeah. So, uh,
0: my, uh, you know, everybody have has parts of their life they wish they could replay. I really wouldn't replay any of my um, post education life. I think I've that that's all gone pretty well. Mm-hmm. But I was a lousy student. It was a um, my the gap between my. What the test score said I should be doing and what I was actually doing was large. And so in an effort to kind of jumpstart that, jumpstart my um, academic career, uh, my parents sent me up to Macaulay, which was a prep school in Chattanooga for 11th and 12th grade. Okay. Um, so the family didn't move. You went to a prep that's school. That's right. That's okay. right. Uh, it didn't really work. I mean, you know, I didn't like getting sent up there away from my friends. And, uh, but the good news is it was in close proximity to Swanee, the university of the South, uh, that's about an hour away up on Mont mountain. And so I learned about that and went there still didn't really get my act together till my junior year when I kind of figured it out. And that's where I met Dina, my wife, that's where i Got into journalism for the first time, writing uh, sports for the Swanee Purple, the student newspaper there, and that's still doing great work. And that was it.
1: All right, so I'm not going to let you go through that whole period quite that fast. Oh so, well, I
0: tried to uh, you, fast, hit the fast forward. You but, did, but
1: yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pump the brakes on that. So. What was going on, do you think I mean obviously you messed up by doing well on the tests, right? To show that <laughs> <laughs> to show that you had the capacity to do that. So what was the disconnect between doing well in school and and you know, obviously having the the ability to do well on the test? The knowledge was there, it seems like.
0: Yeah, I was just uh well I mean that you know the tests were more aptitude, you know, I guess IQ type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just lazy. I mean, I was just lazy. I didn't really know how to study. I just didn't take advantage of what God had given me, which was certainly nothing I had earned. The, the, the gift part was there. The work wasn't, and I just needed to learn how to work. Um, so
1: so what flipped that switch for you in college
0: well desperation i mean it was we were at a point where you know i wasn't going to make it and i needed to flip the switch i needed to learn how to do it or you know i was going to end up doing some manual labor somewhere which was probably less appealing to me than actually starting to study and focus on schoolwork right there was a a guy named Brad Jones, who's now, who ended up being a very successful Episcopal priest and still is, um, he really took me under his wing when I presented him this dire situation I was in and guided me through that. And I'll he, he ended up getting Dina and I married. And um, so uh, I will always owe him a great debt for that.
1: Hmm. So how did you meet Dina? Was she part of this Turnaround or realization no, that it was time she to She was something.
0: oblivious to it. Okay. Uh, you know. Uh, we just met at a party. I mean, she says, you know, that she picked me out the minute I walked into the student <laughs> post office you don't or whatever. That. I, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, we we started dating uh, the middle of my freshman year, which would have been end of eighty four. Beginning of '85, hmm. and uh, got married in '91. So we, it'll be our—we just had our 29th anniversary next year. It'll be 30 and 35 years of you know right. her being stuck with me. So <laughs> it's been a great, great marriage.
1: Yeah. So how did journalism come into the picture? What made you interested in pursuing being part of the paper there?
0: Yeah. So it was really sports was what I was interested in, and. Uh, the ability to go, you know, to write about sports. It was more about the sports than the writing. And then I realized that I love the writing too. I, I had done some stringer work for the Lakeland ledger, I guess while I was in 10th grade, while I was still in Lakeland, you know, covering some of those great little um, Polk County and, and nearby, you know, Fort Meade and, right. and little outlying high school basketball games uh, but it was the sports that got me interested. And so, okay. um, and so that became an obvious place for me to start a career. After Swanee, I drew a line from Texas to North Carolina. I knew I wanted to be in the southeast and just apply to every sports writing job that okay. was open there. And the two that were open were Burlington and Hickory, um, both of them paying $270 a week. And I think I got Hickory to go up to 275, and that's why I chose uh, the Hickory Daily Record. Okay. Um, so that was uh, that was the first. There was some job. strong negotiating there. Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, I brought my attache with me, and <laughs> all business, right?
1: <laughs> so your first job was writing, uh, covering local
0: sports, high school sports, at the Hickory Daily Record. So that was an afternoon paper. So the schedule there was lovely. You would go cover an event at night. Right. You would either come back and write it, or you would just go to bed and, you know, knowing that you would need to be in the office at, you know, four or five in the morning. So the paper got printed late morning and delivered, hopefully for the lunch crowd in the afternoon. And so uh, that was a lot of times the. The days were split right so you you know kind of have the afternoon off but you'd work from five to ten and then from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. or whenever the paper got out right not not a great lifestyle for a um 23-year-old. No.
1: So did you enjoy the job? I mean, other than the weird schedule, did you I, enjoy I did. covering local sports?
0: I, I did. Um, and then um, I I was only in Hickory for six months. I got recruited to come down to Gastonia uh, to work at the Gaston Gazette under a, a guy named the sports editor there was David Poole, who passed away years ago. He ended up becoming one of the really iconic NASCAR beat writers. Um, And so um, that's a name some folks might recognize. And so I started out doing high school sports there. That was a staff of seven in Gastonia. My guess is now that's a staff of two. Right. Um, And so I started off doing high school, but but it was an amazing time. Gastonia was a Charlotte suburb or a pseudo suburb, one county away west of Charlotte. And the Hornets were born while I was there. Oh, okay. That's and big so, news. Yeah. So we we covered every Hornets. Uh, we had a Hornets beat writer, a guy named Bruce Martin. Um, he went with them on the road, and then we would add a reporter or two when they played home games. Get, getting to cover the NBA, you know, when Michael Jordan came to town and all those folks, the real – Thrill, though, is when David handed off to me um, the Gazette's, the Gaston Gazette's master's press pass and said, You're going to be our master's writer. And so, starting in 89 through 97, with one year off there because my daughter was born in 95.
1: And even that was probably a tough call. Oh,
0: I mean, it was – I think it was the closest our marriage came to not making it was during that time. So that would have been Faldo 1 was 89, and then Tiger 1 in 97 Mm. was my last year covering it. So that was an amazing thrill, and we could do a whole podcast, I guess, on the Masters. Yeah.
1: I got to go in 2004 Mm – for the Wednesday practice round, yeah, and um, the par three tournament, but that was Phil's first win
0: oh, the year. So. Yeah, the only downside to my Masters time is they have a media pool uh, where about a quarter to a fifth of the media get to play the course the Monday following oh, tournament. Wow. It's a drawing. Um, so eighty nine, ninety one, two, three, four, five. I was I covered it for eight years. I went over for eight. Mm-hmm. The guy that went in my place the year Mary Francis, my daughter, <laughs> don't was tell born. me he got Oh to yeah, play. so he he got in and got to play. That's the so worst. That was a yeah. uh, that was the only thing that's still stuck in my craw uh, on that. But uh, <laughs> that is bad. That was a real thrill to get yeah. me to cover that as often as I did.
1: That's awesome. Um, did you also kind of move up the ladder of? Um, I know you said you helped cover local Hornets games, too. So you moved up from high school sports?
0: Yeah, and we covered some select ACC games. So I got to sit at the rickety wooden table and cover a Duke Carolina game and Cameron. I got to cover AC, uh, Clemson uh, football and Death Valley. Um, wow. But, you know, it it just the, – the, there was – it didn't take – too long. Other than the Masters, which is in its own league, right? It didn't take too long for me to figure out this was not how I wanted to live my life, right? So counting on D- Dale Curry to say something interesting at ten twenty p.m. and then transcribing that and writing a game story in forty five minutes—I ma- mean, that was just not. It's when the the uh, the leadership bug started to really. Okay. Um, show itself, which I didn't know I had. And again, I, it's important for me to say about a, a lot of these things, you know, th- these, these aren't things I earned, you know, these are talents that are given to me. And in many cases that I screwed up, I, you know, bungled, Right. Uh, but the leadership bug was definitely something that started to manifest itself. And, and so I, I, developed a um, important mentee-mentor relationship with a woman named Jenny Lambert, who was the editor of the Gastonia paper, which at that time was a 40,000 circulation daily with 45, 50 employees, journalists, I should say, not employees, journalists. And she started to really... Guide me through a process of getting into management, and so that started out as being the assistant sports editor, the you know, which felt like I was a you know cabinet secretary. It was <laughs> a, such an important title, right? And and then I eventually moved over to the news side. I I, I had this ability to. Design news pages really well. I don't know where that came from. I have no idea because I can only make stick figures if you ask me to draw right. something artistic. And then eventually became the number two, the managing editor of the Gazette, the num- which was the number two person behind Jenny um, in the newsroom. And you know, I, so I became managing editor in '92, right after we got married. So I was 26. Hmm. That's and that's a so pretty big deal. It was I was super young yeah. and I was, you know, terrible. Terrible manager. Thought thought it was about the stripes on your shoulder and issuing orders and I mean I had to those poor people that work for me, I still, you know, feel still feel guilty and terrible about um, all the lessons I had to learn on right. how you lead people. And so um, hopefully I got better because I wasn't very good then.
1: So you're now managing editor. Mm-hmm. Now, did did you go there from there to Shelby or
0: was there another step? I did. Uh, okay. the, the company I worked for in Gastonia, Freedom Communications, bought the Shelby paper, which was another half an hour to the west, and named me editor at, after that deal closed. And that in many, in some respects, was the Was the most fun I had in journalism. So we had a staff of about 22 or so journal news staff. It's now four. The Star, the Shelby Star, was a 18,000, 20,000 circulation daily. And we did amazing. Some of the of the stories, and when I say stories, that's that really means series of stories that we wrote. Right, they were were just fantastic, and we won a bunch of awards. And the star became a real real force.
1: So, as you kind of move up the ladder in Shelby, at this point, you're. Were you hired as a managing editor or executive editor? No, yeah,
0: I was the editor. I was the top person in the newsroom. And Jenny um, had been brought over as the publisher uh, from Gastonia. So she and I continued to be a a dynamic duo. And when she – I had some other opportunities but knew she was going to retire eventually – and wanted to do, we loved living in Shelby at that point. Dina was a, a judge, district court judge. And so when um, Jenny retired, they made me the publisher of the Star.
1: So you were the Jimbo Fisher of the Shelby yeah, paper? Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> publisher in waiting.
1: Publisher in waiting. Right. Yeah.
0: That's funny. I don't talk as fast as Jimbo, though. No,
1: you definitely don't.
0: The poor Jimbo press conference transcriber. I have such (laughs) empathy for him or her. That was a challenge.
1: Mm. All right. So you go from editor to publisher. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that meant. I mean, I know from when I worked at the Democrat on the ad side for Mm -hmm. a couple of years, my publisher during that time was Carol Mm Dattisman, a news guy. What a great man. Yeah. And people on the news side of the operation really appreciated a publisher from the news side. Mm -hmm. That was important to them. So I just wanted to to see what your thoughts were on becoming publisher and then learning. I'm sure you had some exposure to it, but the reality of running the paper as a business alongside yeah. with keeping the news operation going, how did, how did you handle all of that?
0: Yeah, so I was one of the very last editors to become a publisher. That really didn't happen much af- nationally after, I mean, you know, in that period. It, right. it started to really drop off, I guess I should say. I loved it. I, I loved diving in. So we, you know, we still printed on site at that time and advertising and circulation, and we still had a finance staff in Shelby. So th- those were my direct reports, the editor, the, the, the finance guy, the production guy, the circulation guy, the ad person, right, ad director. And I loved how those worked in harmony. And if you really could do that work collaboratively, there was huge, um, uh, the, there could be a big payoff for the business in the community, right? And so um, I loved how those pieces worked together. But as the industry declined and consolidation started happening, they started peeling those pieces away from me. And so, finance became hubbed over in Gastonia, mm. the prep printing of the paper moved to Gastonia and so on. And so when I became publisher is when the consolidation and the real, you know, cutting and decline in the business began. Right. And so your
1: timing wasn't great on that.
0: No. And so, uh, although I'm glad I was there to do that. So Hmm. I, 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 it was hard work. It was difficult work to figure out how to retain as many resources as you could. And, and to figure out how to try to have um, reductions happen through attrition and other ways. And so I wouldn't have wanted anybody else to have to go through that.
1: Right. And I do want to talk about how active, You were in the community, Mm -hmm. Um, a member of the Shelby Rotary Club on lots of boards. The United Way presented you with a Lifetime Achievement Award there. What did that mean to you first to be so plugged into the community, part of it, in your role, and then to be recognized for that? Tell me about your role in the newspaper and how that all fits both professionally and personally to being so connected to a community like that.
0: Well, what what worked – so what – what energized me was when an organization was uh, w- wanted me not for my title or for a rubber stamp, but really because it was a vibrant, open-to-change type organization. And so that was the United Way. Right. Um, it was run by a guy named Tom Hassel, then a guy named Bill Hooker, and, and I was you know, allowed to say, why do we do it like this? And to ask that question. And we ended up asking that question and really changing things and really changing things for the better. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, that those are the kind of organizations that I'm going to engage with and, and that get my juices flowing. Um, the, the other thing uh, I'll tell you, Shelby had a crime problem. This is connected to the United Way. Shelby had a crime problem, and and there was uh, one shooting in particular that our reporter covered. And, And one of our one of the things we tried to get reporters to do is is there was a a big study shown on how people consume the news. And one of the things that one of the findings was this NAA Project 2000. One of the findings was people want more of a feature approach to the news, particularly crime news. And so this reporter, and I can't remember which one it was. I feel dumb that I can't remember that. But this reporter brilliantly included high up in this murder story that a little girl had at the, near the crime scene had opened the screen door and kind of walked down the stairs and said, who got shot? It was just like a three, four-year-old mm-hmm. child. And it really resonated with the community and with me. Right. Three or four-year-olds are supposed to ask, where's my ball right. or what's for dinner or I'm hungry. And so for for the, a child that young to be so familiar with people getting shot right. that they knew what the crime t- scene meant. So we huddled together and said, maybe we can't solve the crime problem, but we can write about the impact of crime and other things on children. And so we made that a real focus. And one of the things that we discovered was that there was a lot of helping agencies there to help children, but not enough helpers. Hmm. And so we pulled a group of community leaders together and ended up creating a, an event. It was it was poorly t- titled Connect, Commit to Change. But it basically became a volunteer fair where the 50 or so agencies in town, private, public, whatever, nonprofit that were doing things to help children right. could set up a booth and put up a display that says, hey, we need – mentors or we need laptops or we need people to come build a new handicap ramp Mm. at our or whatever the need was and then people could come and they would fill out a commitment card well we ended up getting hundreds of these commitment cards and we would publish them all the names of the people and what they were going to do and that was something that was partnered with the united way well you know that was pretty cool yeah and and it and it was more than just oh well we're going to raise here's our right. campaign goal filling in the and thermometer. That's as it right. Goes yeah, but. yeah. So and and it's been the same thing here uh, with Katrina and uh, Bernice where we've done a new strategic plan for the United Way. That's the kind of stuff that interests me. If you just need me to raise my hand and vote I every you know, six weeks at a meeting, whatever. I mean, I'm probably not going to have good attendance at those, but if you want to get engaged and figure out, Hey, here it's the Alice population and poverty and how we can address that. That's something I'm interested in doing.
1: Yeah. Hey everybody. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about the Tallahassee love book featuring 101 ways to love local. It's full of places to eat, shop and play services that make your life better and even podcasts that connect you with local people. You can find them in businesses and offices all over town. There's also a Facebook group where these businesses are sharing their appreciation for you, offering various perks and prizes. The group is called TLH Love Book Insiders. Check it out on Facebook today. All right, so you left Shelby to go to Fort Walton Beach, right?
0: Yeah, so that was a short stint. Dean and I decided that it was just time to see if there was life outside of mayberry um you know shelby was a small town Um, it was clear that it was probably not going to support the publisher of a daily paper uh you know financially that that wasn't going to work right and indeed, I was the last publisher. I'm the last publisher wherever I go. It <laughs> appears. Um, so I was the last publisher in Shelby, and so I let the at that point new corporate owners know that I was had not been mobile before, but I, I once was immobile. I now am mobile. So when you say last publisher, the paper doesn't exist anymore. The paper doesn't have a pu- that position anymore. Okay. Uh, Because they're run on a more corporate Yeah, regional level. Okay. Um, And the same is true with the Democrat. There's not a publisher. There won't be one um, as far as I know. Okay. They're not going to fill that position. So Fort Walton Beach, amazing place. We actually lived in Destin and drove over the Destin Bridge on the way to work every day. And, you know, Shelby... I said Mayberry, right? you know, Shelby's a place where you move into a neighborhood and, and for whatever reason, you know, you're eating banana pudding for the next month because for whatever reason, that's the go-to welcome to the neighborhood <laughs> gift, right? Right.
1: And if there's any crime, it gets nipped in the bud. Right. So right.
0: for Walton Beach, right. uh, the most, one of the most transient places in the country So the military people at Eglin are coming in and out of there. The snowbirds are coming in and out, the retired military. And so you move into a new neighborhood there and somebody looks out the window and says, eh, they'll be gone in a couple of years. Why go to the trouble? And and then they say, and if they're not gone in a couple of years, we'll be gone in a couple of years. (laughs) And so it was very sandy soil in which to put roots down in a place where you know, for a family that came from a place where going to the grocery store was a three-hour siege of shopping and talking with right. all the people that you knew. And so Gannett called me and was recruiting me for Pensacola. And, you know, that's kind of same kind of place, right? right? I said to them, look, if Tallahassee ever opens up, Let me know. So we haven't talked about this, but I was a child of the Bowden era. Everybody in my family went to FSU. We would drive up from Lakeland in the late 70s. Remember, Saturday Night Fever, the old. Letting the
1: balloons up. Letting the balloons up, the old rail car.
0: Right. Um, And so. Yeah, um, I. I, And I still have family here. I still had family here. And I said, boy, if. And I knew the paper was struggling a little bit. And I said, and that, you know, I'm a turnaround guy. I'd much rather, you know, you take on an A plus operation. All you can do is screw it up. But, uh, so, so it did open up and, and we did come over here and, and I should say that, you know, Dina made a huge sacrifice when we moved to Fort Walton beach. She left her judgeship of almost 15 years because Florida has ridiculous r- lack of reciprocity, she had to study for and sit for the bar again and go through the really humiliating process of, of getting licensed here. So you're in Tallahassee, mm-hmm.
1: 2014, right? correct? The 10th publisher of the Democrat. You already told me about why you wanted to come to Tallahassee as a city, you know, kind of Bowden Knoll fan, all of that. But um, did you know a lot? about the city and the paper when you came here
0: no i didn't uh which was fine because i really like to do my own i have this thing called five questions so i have two things when i came into the market i have a thing called five questions that i send to all of the staff members that was over a hundred well over a hundred employees at the time and it's you know tell me about yourself and tell me about somebody else that does a really good job at the paper and what are the, who are the three people in the community I need to meet and Mm -hmm. what's the key, what are the key strengths and weaknesses and that, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea.
0: Um, And then the other thing I do is I take those, who should I meet in the community and then add to it and, and just start meeting people and asking them. So internally, They had just gone through um, a reorganization, which is a fancy way of saying a downsizing in the number of people in the newsroom, in particular. You know, morale was not great, and the best way I can explain what I needed to do is, we we, when we lived, we lived briefly in a town called Kings Mountain when I was in Gastonia and Dina was in Shelby. And there was a circle we would walk around and we would stroll Mary Frances, And she was fascinated because of goodnight moon with the moon. And so she would always be looking for it and trying to find it in the sky. Sometimes we'd do in the evening. And you'd have to kind of take her head, which I'm doing right now, but you can't see, and turn and point it towards the moon so she could see it. Right, Right, right. Pointing doesn't help. What I needed to do was get our folks to focus on all that we could still do, which was a lot. So I needed to turn their head to the positive space of, hey, we've still got 25 journalists in this newsroom. We've still got all of these ad people. We've got a lot that we can still do. Um, The other thing I was able to do is move some money around and backfill some, some positions that we had lost that we didn't need to lose. So one of the things when I started with Gannett that people said is, oh, you know, how are you going to deal with that big bureaucracy? Well, the way most people deal with it is they just surrender to it. I said, well, look, I got a plan. It doesn't cost us any more money. I'm going to run it up the flagpole and just make them either say yes or no. Right. And, and you know, navigate the bureaucracy rather than just surrender to it. And so we were able to add a, so, you know, we didn't have a capital reporter here in the capital of the third largest state in the union. That right. didn't seem okay. We didn't have a high school sports reporter. We didn't have a K-12 education reporter. And we didn't have a business reporter. We were able to add all of those things back in without really losing anything um so how why did they go for that
1: because well, it idea? was
0: it was expense neutral okay and there was no reason not to do it
1: what do you mean it was expense neutral other positions were not filled that not as necessary I,
0: well i was able to save some money in some other ways okay and so and so that was an important signal to the community We care about these areas. It gave me something to tout when I did my who the hell is this guy tour of, you know, speaking engagements and meetings. And, And the other thing is we established a strong editorial voice that was independent and unpredictable. Right. So it wasn't driven by ideology. It was driven by here are the facts as we know them. And here's what we suggest be done. So I, you know, when I left five years later, uh, the, the right thought I was a commie and the left thought I was whatever the right wing equivalent of a commie is. And that's a compliment, um, right? Yeah. And, and hallelujah for that, because, um, if one side, it always would make me real nervous when one side loved us and the other didn't. Right. Um, you know, I worry about that now because it's nationally, it's the case that con- that if you look at the confidence in media numbers um, for Democrats and Republicans, the gap has never been bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like 68 to 17. Um, and that's a relatively recent phenomena. Mm -hmm. You know, I worry about that. I worry about it a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, we've talked about it some, but in your opinion, what is the role of a newspaper in a community?
0: Well, I mean, I could answer that in the theoretical, theoretically, because, I'm afraid that role is really, in reality, changing a lot, right? Um, as the industry declines. Well, let, it,
1: let me let me let me change the question. What did you see the role of the Tallahassee Democrat for the
0: Tallahassee area? To lead. So to lead by um, informing and sometimes entertaining. Our readers on the important issues of the day um, by sharing compelling viewpoints, by partnering with businesses on the ad side to help them grow, businesses and organizations to help them grow, get their message, sell their products or services, um, and to do that with um, amazing customer service and with um, integrity.
1: Do you think that as a whole, the team at the Democrat fulfilled that mission the best they could given oh, the yeah, resources this, they had?
0: They've done amazing work and, and we have some ways to measure that. Journalism is, is an art so it's not easy to measure but, um, But if you the team won a lot of awards during that period, they won a lot of awards. Our um, engagement, digital engagement numbers compared to our peers in Gannett, were shockingly high. Hmm. So we were doing, and and, you know, there's different ways to measure that. The most kind of rudimentary and least useful is page views. Um, but there are other measurements, time spent on site, the stickiness of the site. The, right. the, and we were doing twice the engagement of other newspapers that, uh, of which we were half their size. So, Why do you uh, think that is? Well, William Hatfield is a just remarkable editor who is everything as a young manager that I don't think I was. <laughs> Um, and then we just had a team of all-stars uh, the Jeffs, Berlew and Schweers, you know, Jennifer Portman before she moved over to USA today, just did amazing work. Um, uh, Tamarin, Carl, uh, Byron Dobson. Um, and then a lot of these new young reporters, Netta and, and CD, Ashley White, who was here for some time. Gosh, I know I'm forgetting the sports crowd is amazing. And they did just tremendous journalism. Some of the reporting on on the public city public corruption was not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Untangling these land deals and and a lot of pieces. You know, you try to find think about how many undercover FBI investigations have been conducted in the US. Okay. Now go try to find one where the agent's activities were outed by a newspaper hmm. and there was extensive reporting on who they met with and what they did. It just doesn't happen. Right. Um, and yet we were able to, to do that. Um, so, uh, and then of course there's luck, right? People don't want to talk about luck you know, we had these unbelievable stories, Mark Hell. I mean, are you kidding me? It's, right. you know, been on Dateline. It seems like every other week, Mike Williams, um, Mike way, the Mike Williams yeah. case, the, uh, everything that was going on at FSU with Jimbo and Taggart and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. The Hermine and Michael. Um, so, uh, but, uh, responding to those. So we've we kind of made a commitment on Michael. Hey, we're, we're going to go to these, Places nobody's heard of, right? Donaldson, Georgia, and little towns that we had to strain to find on a map. And we're going to tell those stories—sometimes just heart-wrenching stories mm-hmm. of of the pain that they went through—and and really document that. And so, well, that follows
1: your philosophy back to the the children in Shelby, that's right? right? The crime. Yeah, right? it's yeah. putting a face on it, yeah. making people feel it, not just the statistics and the You know, the
0: reality of it. I think we've, I'm not sure we did as well on that here. You know, Tallahassee is a different, I think the crime issue here is different. And I I wish we had been stronger editorially on some things that I think feed into that.
1: Before you left the Democrat and now you um, have always been very engaged in community conversations, Mm -hmm. whether with the chamber, leadership, Tallahassee, the village square, Mm -hmm. why is that important to you? And why, why do you enjoy that so much?
0: Well, I like being an antidote to the, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, the just kind of ideologically blinder wearing, um, discourse that too often dominates our public conversation. So, I I want to make sure people are looking at things from all, all sides. And so I just think that's important. Uh, I think it should be the role of journalism is to, uh, and particularly when there is a prevailing viewpoint on things, you know, COVID is a great example. Um, I'm really drawn to, <clears throat> Some of the contrary information that doesn't just kind of follow the packs, um, you know, conventional wisdom on things, right? Um, you know, which I brought this over here and was, you know, and I'm wearing it everywhere I go. The mask that I just held up, right? Um, it's not to say I'm, you know, being stupid about things, but you know, this is a oversimplifying a pandemic is really short-sighted. These are complicated things, and I think it's possible that we know really very little about these things. And so that and a lot of other issues and local issues, I'm just interested in digging and finding more.
1: Right. Some people today will know you as much from your (laughs) Facebook page as they do that you were publisher of The Democrat. And that is primarily because you are a in, you are an invested weather hobbyist. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that is the correct way to represent yes. that, right? Yes. Because you're very clear that you are not a meteorologist. No. You don't pretend to be yes. one. No. You did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express. Right. You are a hobbyist. But a very trusted and followed one. So tell me about your passion for weather and where all that
0: started. So it started in North Carolina. A Florida boy moved to a climate where – once or twice maybe three times a year it snows and and so that just became I, and even at swanee i remember i had one of the little uh noah weather radios and i would listen to the forecast and i knew what time they would update it and so i would start listening right around three o'clock and you know we got snow at swanee definitely every year in fact we had a horrific ice storm, the winter of my freshman year where it was pouring down rain and nine degrees Wow. and we were without power for a week anyway. But so, um, and that was the, so back to North Carolina, that was the dawn of the internet age. And I quickly found that so much of the material that the professional meteorologists were using was available online, you know, for free. Sure. And then I found that there were message boards where a lot of these pros would talk to each other. And so you could really find out a lot about what was going on, the computer models and such. And so I would start writing about it. And two things then kind of became clear. One is there are a lot of people that really, really, really are fascinated and excited about snow.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Um, and the second one is, and I really don't know how to explain this, but the way that I presented it was very appealing and interesting to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the only thing that I think I've got over the weather service which certainly isn't any meteorolo, meteorological knowledge or any, anything like that, is just I can operate on my own time. And so, um, you know, they update generally t- two to three times a day. I could do that much more frequently and could kind of in real time, I would do real time model run. Um, you know, kind of chats, right? Where, okay, here comes the 12Z GFS and, you know, as it stands now, we're going to get eight inches of snow. Let's see if this holds serve. And the same thing, I did a little of that with um, Hermine and Michael, kind of play by play. Right. And so it just became a thing and people really – enjoyed it and I can't fully explain it other than I guess it's just my passion that somehow flows through, you know, what I write. But it's a I mean
1: But it's continued here. It's
0: totally continued here. And I still do when when there's a big storm coming to Shelby, I'll still make Facebook posts on that. And you know, I get these friend requests from people that I have no idea who they are (laughs) and they live somewhere in North Carolina and most of the time I just don't accept them because I, I don't want to, you know, then have to see their cats for the next, you know, the rest of my life, even though I have no idea who they are. So I can't explain it. It's a funny little phenomena and a wonderful hobby that just I really love.
1: Right. Um, I, and you're also publishing, this is a, a recent development, right, the fanatical middle fanaticalmiddle.com. Right. And I, I described it as a news blog, but is that – yeah,
0: it's just a place for me to set to back to this idea that if you're just barreling down the ideological railroad line and not considering other points of view, you're really not doing the world justice. Right. That's just not how the world works. That we, we This is not a party platform existence we're in. And, and we need more Republicans— And Democrats to say, wow, um, you know, I'm going to vote for Biden or Trump, but I sure don't agree with them on these two things. Or, man, I want Trump to lose worse than anything in the world, but he was actually right about that thing. Or I agree with him on this thing. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to do that, then you're just kind of a cheerleader in some, you know, high school musical uh, production of politics, right? <laughs> the, the the political version of High School Musical, and and you're not adding anything to anything. Um, and so what I'm, so you know, I did one on the the whole con, uh, monument thing, right? And and I, what I where I came to is I, I find that I can draw a line between um, Robert E Lee and Thomas Jefferson where Robert E. Lee falls on one side of the line, you know, the, the, and, and Jefferson on the other. Right. We look at the totality of what they did, and the totality of what Robert E. Lee did is was a very successful general in a very unworthy cause. Right. Uh, Jefferson was a flawed human who led an incredibly important um, political experiment that resulted in um, an unbelievable contribution to humankind, um, you know. They should be judged differently. Yeah, they they right. should be judged differently. And, and, and you know, nuance is my favorite word, and I think it's something that we need to recapture.
1: Hmm. And so this allows you to to explore those thoughts yes. in different subjects?
0: Yeah, so I went a couple of weeks without posting, and then I did two or three um, things in a row. And it's just as I see things, that need, um, I think, more depth and nuanced discussion and contemplation, those will be the things I'll be going for.
1: Right. And that's at fanaticalmiddle.com. That's right. right? Okay, good. You've Mm -hmm. talked about your wife, Dina, Mm -hmm. and the obvious importance in her life and what she means to you. But tell me about her. Why why is she such a good compliment to you? And why has it worked for you together? <laughs> or I'm assuming, wait, I'm, I'm assuming she's a good compliment to oh, you. Oh, yeah. But
0: we, at Swanee, we were together so long, you know, three and a half years. She's She was a year, she's a year ahead of me. She graduated in 87. That's me, better than saying older than you. Yeah, right? I said, I almost said it, and no, I said ahead of me. And they started to call us Skeena, Skina, S-K-I-N-A, because we were together so much. <laughs> Uh, she, you know, that's so hard to answer, you know, to know us is to know exactly how that and why we work together to explain it, I think is a very different thing. She is, um, just, um, has a huge heart full of joy, laughs a lot, and, um, is just somebody that people are attracted to i'll I'll tell you that this is the best way i can describe you know and she's kind of loud and um when when uh when she started at a law firm in fort walton beach one of my one of the partners there who's a dear friend um this was a really um kind of buttoned up everybody stays in their office or cubicle quiet kind of place and We were having lunch and she's still a dear friend of me today. And she said, you know, I think Dina will really have to get used to this quieter workplace. And I immediately broke into a grin and said, and she's like, what's so funny? I said, well, we'll talk later. But my guess is that you're going to have to get used to (laughs) Dina more than she's going to have to get used to you. And so sure enough, you know, she was there for 18 months and I remember there where they they had a going away thing for. Her. Who has a going away thing for? Her? Right. And the staff, you know, are crying. You know that she's leaving after that, just eighteen months. Yeah, it's just eighteen months, and right. so that's the. You know, she's never met a stranger. You know, I'm much more dry and and more introverted, and, and we're just you know we complement each other very well.
1: And you have three children,
0: yes, right? Tell me about them mary francis is uh our oldest uh, uh boy i'm probably gonna mess the ages up here i think she's 25 and she works at moore uh with uh karen and terry R there yeah. and is um, doing very well and um uh, really enjoys that uh, she lives in town Matthew is uh, my middle son. He just graduated from the Deadman Hospitality School at FSU. Great time to be graduating <laughs> yeah. in the hospitality Lots of segment. Um, so he's uh, he had you know job offers that uh, that disappeared, and mm. so he's working on you know trying to find something and is doing doing well on that search and doing some part time stuff in the interim and is a, just a great young man and then will is my youngest uh, just graduated from child's and is going to do sports management at fsu he's doing the tcc to fsu program because you know now to get into fsu you have to have a 9.5 gpa (laughs) and have scored four million on your sat which is tough yeah so uh he's looking forward to that they're great great kids we have a great family
1: that's awesome all right skip two more questions first looking back what is the one thing or person that you would say changed or altered the trajectory of your life?
0: Yeah, so the two people would be Brad Jones. Well, I've already talked about both of them, Brad Jones, who really helped me get my act together in college. And if that hadn't happened, you know, I would have ended up being a plumber or, a, what, you know, something like that, which is a perfectly wonderful field. but. Um, not, I think, what I was called to do. So he got me on the right track. And then Jenny Lambert, who mentored me through my journal most of my journalism career and prepared me um, to uh, be a leader, right. so um, those two folks. And final question,
1: this podcast is named How I Got Here, mm-hmm. so we talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in the next three to five years?
0: Well, what what I I've started a consulting company. <clears throat> I think I can help people with crisis communication. Um, I think I can help people with marketing strategy. Um, I'm, I'm interested in doing that. Um, I think the this future of nonprofit news is interesting. I want to learn more about it. I think that there's... If for-profit journalism continues to struggle, that's something that I also want to look at. I'm, I'm interested in public discourse, so you know I've always been drawn to the village square. Um, and then I have some opinions that, you know, for this market that I think are important that I want to, that I'm starting to talk about and want to talk about more. Um,
1: Do you want to share any of those ideas?
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to speak pretty frankly now, more frankly than if I was at the paper. You know, we've talked a lot about crime and poverty in this market, and I think it's a terrible reality. We also talk a lot in this market about um, growth and the pretty open hostility to growth that exists in a lot of quarters. I think those things are very related, and and I worry about it. I, I've been here for almost six years. Do you know how many significant economic development, new industry announcements there have been since I've been here? Zero. Zero. That's like astonishing, right? Since Dan Foss, really. Since right? Dan Foss. What I want to say to the people who oppose growth and say, I want Tallahassee to be like it's always been, a sleepy town. I don't want things to change. I want to be able to walk from my bed house to Cool Beans to have lunch. I want to be able to get from Killarne to my kid's school without ever hitting a stoplight or ever hitting any traffic. Okay, I get that. You need to own the South side.
1: Hmm.
0: You need to own the result of a no growth county, which we are. I can't remember how recent it was, but I looked at the top 20, maybe it was 19 counties by population in Florida. And Leon was last in population growth. Hmm. Okay. The product of a lack of growth is poverty, and crime. Those are like back to econ one oh one, right? And so just own it. Just, just you know, if, if you're not, if you're going to oppose growth in all of these forms, if you're not going to put a priority on economic development and new industry going to town coming to town, that's your prerogative to do that. to Avail yourself of the civic process. But people need to just understand that they're a part of the problem, right? And, and you don't get to lament that, right, um, as you um, perpetuate it. So I, I, I'm not interested in people who oppose growth at every turn and they say, oh, well, what are we going to do about the crime problem? I'm not talking about, you know, us becoming Orlando, for heaven's sakes. But we've got this amazing resource, this mag lab, a Crown jewel, a coveted, you know, amenity in, um, uh, that should be the hub of economic development, and we just can't figure it out, and right. it drives me insane. So, so, for me, that's the thing. That's that's the thing. Poverty and crime are the are the byproducts we need to focus on, and if we don't figure out how to, and there's just no appetite for it here. And 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 so the only strategy I know to come up with is to make sure people know, if that's your point of view, you need to own the byproduct of it, which is worst crime in the state, or maybe we're only third now. You know, Hallelujah, and this insane poverty and Alice population that is just heartbreaking and unacceptable, and we'll never solve that by moving the dollars around in the government or the nonprofit sector, that's not how those problems get solved. So for me, that's it in this town. And I don't hear that voice really coming from much of anywhere. Mm -hmm. If your position is any tree that needs to be cut down for any reason should be cut down. That's the same thing on the opposite side of this. If your position is, if we don't grow, we're going to die. And people are going to die. People are dying. I mean, let's call Mm. this what it is. A no-growth policy kills people Mm. through crime, through poverty, through all of these other things. It's just like, you know, COVID. I mean, the, the lockdown saves lives undoubtedly in one way. It also costs lives. The suicide rate has gone through the roof. Young people, a quarter of them have contemplated it. There's ramifications to these things. What does it mean for the public policy? Hell, I don't know. But it's worth talking about as opposed to just, you know, oh, masks are the devil. Or if you don't wear a mask, you're going, you know, these kind of oversimplifications of things. I just want people to talk about things in a respectful way and challenge the the way things are always done, thought, and talked about.
1: That was Skip Foster. On a personal note, I have had the pleasure to hear Skip lead community discussions on these issues, and I'm confident that he is not alone in seeking meaningful conversation. We will decide what kind of community we will become, and I encourage you to be part of the process. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiore Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fiorecommunications.com.